We want to return to the handout number three and continue with our discussion of the call of Jeremiah to be a prophet. We talked about the structure of this chapter, at least from verse 4 through verse 19 last time, and I refer you back to that discussion. Suffice it to say, we noted the dialogue style of this chapter in which God and the prophet are in a back-and-forth dialogue. But I want now to look at the bottom of that first page of uh, handout number three, the retrospective redemptive historical echoes. As you look at verses five and six in particular, I'm wondering if you have any kind of sense that you've heard some of this before or there's something similar that you've heard before, and if so, uh, can you put your finger on it? Harriet? No, not Paul. I'm, I'm thinking retrospectively, that is back before Jeremiah. Okay, you had your head up. Is that a, a head of, I know something? Well, I sort of have a footnote. You have a footnote. So it wasn't my own original thought. That's all right. You were, you were wise enough to look at the footnote. Well, I am. No, I'm thinking particularly of that sixth verse where Jeremiah says, I do not know how to speak. Does that ring a bell, Ben? Moses, that is correct. If we go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, keep your finger in Jeremiah and turn back to Exodus 3.11. And Remember that this is Moses at the burning bush in this chapter, and this is the call of Moses. So we have a similar pattern here, the call of Jeremiah and the call of Moses. So the motif is the same. But notice that 11th verse where Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, this hesitancy, this demur, as it were, in Moses' demeanor. And the same thing is true here in Jeremiah. Alas, Lord, although he doesn't say, who am I? But notice in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses does say something that is very similar to what Jeremiah says in verse 6 of chapter 1. Exodus 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either recently nor in time past, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So we have the very same specific feature of hesitancy, namely, not particularly skilled in uh, speaking or knowing what to say. Well, um, that reminds us that we have a kind of echo backwards to a previous prophet of the Lord, namely Moses. And there are some other similarities that we'll point out in a moment. But then there's another uh, backward glance, and it's to this figure, the Ebed Yahweh. Now, um, 
that is a Hebrew phrase. It's a technical phrase that refers to a particular personality who is described particularly in the book of Isaiah. Does anyone know what this phrase means besides those that know Hebrew? So we'll skip over Pete and Scott for the moment and ask if any of the rest of you have ever seen this or recognize it. Well, we have to appeal to our professor of Hebrew. Scott? Servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. Eved means servant. Yahweh is the actually Hebrew transcription of the word Jehovah. It appears in the King James Version or in your versions now, Lord. So the servant of the Lord, and you think of the songs of the servant or the servant songs in Isaiah, particularly chapters 42 and following, the most famous of which would be anyone? What's the most famous servant song, Ben? Chapter 53, Isaiah 53, <clears throat> the servant of the Lord who comes as a lamb led to the slaughter, etc., there are actually a number of those Abed Yahweh songs, servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Well, is Isaiah before Jeremiah or is he after Jeremiah? What do you say about that, Harriet? Is he before or after Jeremiah? He is before. How many years before, Clay? Approximately. Round numbers. Lisa, what would you say? How, how many years before Jeremiah? We have Jeremiah dated to what year? Okay, what year do we have Jeremiah dated to here? Um, I'm trying to think about looking. I, oh, I, it's I all right, you can look. Cheating's all right. 626. 626, all right. What would you think? Of, Frank, what would you think of Isaiah? Where would you put Isaiah? Terry? Uh, Maybe before that, yes. Loretta? I'm seeing 740 to 680. Very good. About 100 years before or a little more, 740 to 680, particularly a prophet during what king's reign? Isaiah active during what king's reign? The sundial goes back. Ten degrees. Hezekiah, correct. And the siege of Jerusalem in 701 by Sennacherib and the Assyrians. So it's interesting that we have the parallel. Jeremiah is going to face a siege of Jerusalem. He's going to face three sieges of Jerusalem, not by the Assyrians. It's going to be by the Babylonians. But Isaiah is also uh, besieged, and uh, the king of Jerusalem at that time is shut up, as the Assyrian chronicles say, like a bird in a cage. Well, <clears throat> this servant song of Isaiah, this projection of this suffering servant, sometimes called the suffering servant of the Lord. What do we find about him? All right, let's turn to Isaiah. You don't have to turn back so far this time to chapter 42 of Isaiah. And let's note that in verse 5 of Jeremiah 1, that word appointed, translated appointed in the last line of verse 5, is in the King James more accurately translated ordained. 
ordained. So if your version does read ordained, that's a better translation of that Hebrew word there. Let's go back to Isaiah 42, verse 1 then. And here is a servant song. Notice how it begins. Behold my servant, my Ebed, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Now, what's a synonym for chosen? A good Calvinistic synonym for chosen. Okay? Elected. Elected. Mine elect. In fact, that's how the King James reads there. So this... A person that is described as a servant is described as the elect, the chosen, the predestinated, the ordained of the Lord. So here we have Jeremiah being described as the one who is ordained by the Lord as a prophet to the nations. Now, turning over to uh, verse chapter 44 of Isaiah, let's take a look at Isaiah 44, verse 2. And Ben, if you have it, would you read it? Isaiah 44, 2. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshua, whom I have chosen. Very good. Now, what word do you notice there that's similar to the language that you find in verse 5 of Jeremiah 1? Chosen is there, all right? Yes, formed in the womb. Here's language of this servant of the Lord in Isaiah 44, which is very similar to language which we find in the case of Jeremiah. Now, one more passage, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. All right, so Jeremiah, as this servant of the Lord, is called before his birth. He is, in fact, elected, predestinated, ordained before his birth to be the servant of the Lord, Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord. So, is Jeremiah, the prophet, like unto Moses of Deuteronomy 18? Why do I refer to Deuteronomy 18? Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Where the Lord says to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is the prediction of a prophet like unto Moses. Well, is Jeremiah this prophet like unto Moses? Is he the eschatological Moses? Is he the second Moses? Or, we ask the question another way, is the long-expected servant of the Lord, Jeremiah, is the eschatological Ebed Yahweh, servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53, is he Jeremiah? The echo raises the question. In other words, if there is this 
ongoing ripple of similarity between the call and appointment of Moses, the call and appointment and designation of the great servant of the Lord, the coming servant of the Lord. And here is Jeremiah described in the very same style of characterization, the very same style of God's designation, calling, being formed, known before his birth, predestinated, ordained, etc. In other words, is Jeremiah the second Moses? Is he Isaiah's servant of the Lord? Well, no, he's not. And we know that. Uh, We know that. Why? Because the New Testament tells us he wasn't. And the New Testament tells us he wasn't in two places. Who is this prophet like unto Moses, for instance, of Deuteronomy 18? Anyone? This is Christ. In Acts chapter 3, Peter indicates that that passage in Deuteronomy 18 that we just read is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And then Stephen, in his great... Uh, his great valedictory in Acts chapter 7, when he speaks about the whole history of redemption from Abraham on down to Christ and is stoned for his problem, for his troubles. <clears throat> Stephen also cites this passage from Deuteronomy 18 and says this Jesus who has come is that Moses who was prophesied, or that one like unto Moses who was prophesied. So it's this pattern that we see often in the New Testament, namely the this that has arrived is that which God specified, prophesied, designated, etc. Well, we have now a series of reflections, namely that Christ is the end of a long so a series of designations of prophets of the Lord appointed to speak on his behalf, known from known from before they were born, chosen of God, appointed from all eternity, predestinated. Moses qualifies. We've seen that Isaiah's servant qualifies. Jeremiah qualifies. Christ is the fulfillment of that. So that do we not really see Christ in Moses and Christ in the servant of the Lord, the Abed Yahweh in Isaiah and Christ in Jeremiah. Isn't that not what we're being invited to see? In other words, if God forms them in this way, in this ongoing, rippling, unfolding pattern of the very same similarities, the very same sequence, the very same narrative. Is it not that he's forming in them the Christ to come? In fact, he is displaying the coming of his son in Moses. He's displaying the coming of his son in the servant of the Lord of Isaiah. He's displaying the coming of his son in the prophet Jeremiah. We pointed that out in our first study. We noted that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet of the Old Testament. And who weeps over Jerusalem before his death? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. In other words, Jeremiah is being conformed unto the measure of Christ from afar. The servant of the Lord of Isaiah is being conformed unto Christ from afar. Moses is conformed unto Christ from afar. The writer of Hebrews says he bore the reproach of Christ, Hebrews 11. 
All right, so this paradigm that we're noting here is an intentional tracing out of the richness of the life of Christ as it's displayed not only prophetically by way of projection, but it's portrayed by way of identification. These individuals, Moses, the servant of the Lord, Jeremiah, they are being brought into an identification of union with the Lord. Their life is being conformed unto the God who has called them, even as he conforms their life to the life of his son. Though the son has not been fully revealed yet. The majesty and the marvel then of the Old Testament is we not only see Christ in it by way of prediction, by way of projection, by way of he's going to come, but we see Christ being formed in these believers as Christ, as God brings these believers into union with himself, which means he's bringing them into relationship with his son. And that's the reason for looking at these retrospective redemptive historical echoes in the call of Jeremiah. It pushes us back to see there's a long storyline here. It's eventually going to culminate in the great eschatological prophet who is the Lord Jesus Christ, none other than the son of the very God of gods himself. All right, now, notice some other things in this verse. The word consecrate is used there, and it comes from the Hebrew word which is related to holiness, which means to be set aside. Consecrated here means to be set aside for a particular purpose, and the purpose is to bring the word of the Lord to the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem in the time of uh, the 7th century B.C. So we have a number of C words. We have conception. Before you were formed in the womb, we have consecration. I have set you apart. We have commission. I am now declaring that you have been ordained to be a prophet to the nations. That's your commission. And finally, in verse 10, we have collision. You are going to tear down and build up. And we'll look at that in detail a little later. But here is a, shall we say, microcosm of Jeremiah's career. Conception, consecration, commission, and collision. Collision with uh, <clears throat> sin, collision with uh, idolatry, collision with apostasy, collision with the uh, <clears throat> machinations of the, uh, the kingdoms and power brokers of the world. All of that is going to come to fruition in this book of Jeremiah. Now, that fifth verse also contains the word nations. And if you notice down in verse 10, the nations also appears again. In other words, Jeremiah is going to be brought into an interface with the nations, with the Goyim, with the Gentiles. What nations do we know already from our study? What nations is Jeremiah going to interact with? Robert, name one. Okay, what king is he going to enter? What nations? Uh, Who's going to come and surround him? Like Syria is going to, isn't it? No. 
Who's going to come and surround him, Terry? Babylonian. The Babylonians. So the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar are certainly going to be part of the nations that he's going to encounter. Anyone else? Any other nation? Herod, any other nation he's going to encounter? Egypt is correct. He's going to, in fact, he's going to be taken down into Egypt, isn't he? At the end of this book, we're going to find that he himself is kidnapped and taken down forcibly to Egypt. Now, Robert had mentioned Assyria, and Assyria is in the paradigm, but it wasn't the nation that surrounded Jerusalem and Judah in the time of Jeremiah, but it is a nation which is fading in the time of Jeremiah. So we have Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, and, of course, we have the kingdom of Judah itself. Any questions about that? Verse 6. I am but a youth. How old is he? I can't tell you how much ink has been wasted on trying to figure out how old Jeremiah is. It's an impossible uh, determination simply because the word is used throughout the Old Testament in a number of relationships which could indicate a person anywhere from about 12 to 18 years of age. He is a youth. That is, he's not a man yet. So uh, we consider him uh, somewhat under the age of, shall we say, 21, 20, 18, but more specific than that, we cannot be. All right, now once again, this reminds us of Exodus 3, 11, which we already looked at, where Moses says, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to do this. I'm not really adequate for this task. And here is Jeremiah saying the same thing. He doesn't feel he's up to the job. He has a sense of his own inability. And, of course, God is going to respond in verse 7 by saying, uh, don't worry about your inability. I will be your ability. Don't worry about your unworthiness. I will take care of your worthiness. Don't worry about your insufficiency. I will be your sufficiency. Notice the paradigm. Where does the ability come from? Where does the sufficiency come from? Where does the worthiness come from? It does not come from Jeremiah. It comes from God. God who knows that Jeremiah, like every sinner, every good Calvinist knows this about every sinner, don't we? Every good Calvinist knows that every sinner is totally unable, and Jeremiah is totally unable, just like every other sinner. And therefore, if Jeremiah is going to be able to fulfill this commission, is the ability going to come from Jeremiah? Or is it going to come from God at work in Jeremiah? Yes, I trust that we haven't forgotten that, and we won't get uh, bogged down in any ridiculous notions about somehow they've got merit to do this on their own, or they can somehow you know, screw themselves up you know, in some kind of fashion in order to uh, gain God's favor by deserving it. Jeremiah doesn't plead that, does he? He pleads his inability, and God assures him that his inability will not be a barrier to God's all-sufficient divine and gracious Ability. All right. Now, we've noted at the beginning of this series that Jeremiah is an extremely skilled orator, as well as a very skilled rhetor. That is, he uses rhetoric in this book. He's a very skilled writer. Okay, If he dictated much of this book, as I think he did, he's a very skilled writer. He has a great style. So we must ask the question, how did this youth, Jeremiah, 
come to learn all these techniques of rhetorical style, oratorical style, hortatory style, narrative style, prose style, poetic style. There's poetry all through this book, as we're going to see. Amazing poetry in many cases. So where did he learn all this? Oh, God just dropped it down on him. No, Jeremiah had to go to seminary. Well, not quite that. But the point is, he had to be trained. He had to be learned. God used his training. God used his previous exposure to knowledge, to education. It's Paul at the feet of Gamaliel. We don't get Paul on the road to Damascus unless he first goes to the feet of Gamaliel. Paul's a student. In fact, he's a very great student. He's a Jewish scholar student at the feet of Gamaliel because Gamaliel was the greatest Jewish teacher of the day. And that's the reason Paul went to study under it. So who does Jeremiah study under? Well, we don't know for sure, but we look up there at verse 1, and it says Jeremiah was born in Anathoth. And yet he spends a great deal of his time in Jerusalem. And notice in this book, from your handout... that there is a person mentioned a number of times in this book who is a scribe in Jerusalem. His name is Shaphan. Now, what's a scribe in Jerusalem do? Well, he copies things. That's what a scribe's job is. But he also operates a school. He also has a place where young people are taught, particularly young boys. So is it conceivable that Jeremiah, because he mentioned Shaphan so many times, that Jeremiah went from Anathoth down to Jerusalem where Shaphan lodged, where Shaphan was centered, and went to his school and learned rhetoric, oratory, poetry, prose, narrative style? Is it possible? It is possible. Am I sure of that? I'm not sure of it. I'm making a suggestion based upon an implication from the fact that Shaphan appears in the book of Jeremiah in a positive light a number of places. Now, who was Shaphan? In addition to being a scribe, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 22, which is noted there, you will find that Shaphan is the high priest during the time when King Josiah cleanses the temple. And they discover the book of Deuteronomy, and they read it to the great uh, joy of the people of Jerusalem, And they celebrate the Passover as it was specified in the book of the law for the first time since the days of Joshua. They celebrate it correctly for the first time since the days of Joshua. So Shaphan, along, I'm sorry, he wasn't the high priest. He's, He's a friend of the high priest, Hilkiah. I apologize for that. Hilkiah is the high priest. But Shaphan and Hilkiah cooperate in this. And in fact, Shaphan reads this book to the king. So he's a key element in Josiah's era, Josiah's administration, shall we say. And he has three sons. He has three boys. And these three boys are mentioned and named in the book of Jeremiah. The first one's name is Ahikam. He's mentioned in Jeremiah 26, verse 24. What did Ahikam do for Jeremiah? He actually saved him or protected him when the people tried to kill Jeremiah. So here is Shaphan's family 
throwing a gauntlet of protection around Jeremiah when he's threatened with death in chapter 26. The second son is Elisar. Elisar in chapter 29, verse 3, what does he do? He carries a letter of Jeremiah. He actually is a courier. He carries a letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles in Babylon after Jehoiakim had been carried off into captivity with the queen mother. We mentioned that last time, 597 B.C., the second siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and Jehoiakim probably goes out to spare the city uh, a further uh, destruction by surrendering himself and his mother and the royal entourage and a number of other captives and, so to speak, kind of buys off Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, at least that's the suggestion I made at that time. And having been carried off into captivity, Jeremiah writes a letter to them and sends it by the hand of the son of Shaphan. Here's this family entering in once again to the uh, narrative story of Jeremiah. And the third son is Gemariah. Now, Gemariah, his name has been discovered on one of the bullae that were the archaeologists have uncovered over the last 40 years. In our first session, we actually showed you the picture of that bullae. And if you weren't here, then you can go out on the Internet and download that handout. And you actually see that little uh, stamp seal that has Shaphan, son of Gemariah, on it. It's like stamped right on it. So that name, the name of this third son, has been uncovered in Jerusalem on a little clay seal. Well, what did Gemariah do? He begged King Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 36 not to burn Jeremiah's scroll. Jeremiah 36, verses 10 and 25. Once again, one of the sons of Shaphan, house of Shaphan, this scribe in Jerusalem, they they enter into the protection, defense, and also assistance of Jeremiah in his ministry, in his mission in his call to be a prophet and spokesman of the Lord. All right, now, I am speculating slightly here. In other words, I'm connecting Jeremiah with the scribal school of Shaphan in Jerusalem. That is speculation, I admit it. And yet it makes sense insofar as this family plays a large role in the life of Jeremiah later on in his career, and I think they're there because... Perhaps Shaphan's sons went to school in the same scribal school as Jeremiah did, and they got to know him, and they were friendly with him, and they understood that he was a servant of the Lord, and they wanted to protect him and also promote uh, promote what he was saying, particularly with Gemariah, who was horrified that Jehoiakim wants to slice up that role of Jeremiah's prophecies and feed it into the fire. To stand against the king and say... Don't do this. It takes a lot of courage. It also is a sign of a great deal of loyalty, not just to the Lord, but to the Lord's anointed prophet. All right, so there are some suggestions about how Jeremiah comes to be so well-trained, so well-educated, so gifted in the style that we find in this uh, large, in fact, the largest single author book in the whole Old Testament. Any questions about any of that? All right, verse 7. That phrase, all I command you, is a precise duplication of Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, where Moses says that that prophet 
who will come like Moses, will speak all that I command you. So we have another link to Moses, to the eschatological Moses that Moses projects in Deuteronomy 18 with this phrase. Now, in verse 7, we have a do not phrase from the Lord, and it's repeated in verse 8, do not. And why do we have a double do not from God in verses 7 and 8? When, when Hebrew repeats something, what's the point generally? And generally, there's a, there's a basic point when Hebrew repeats something. What's the basic point? It is important. So it's done for emphasis. The repetition makes it emphatic. Okay? All right, so this is an emphatic do not. Why does God make it so emphatic? For Jeremiah's sake. Why? To encourage him. Why? Why? Show me the text. Verses 7 and 8 are a double do not because they answer what in verse 6? I do not. Another do not. Yeah, look at that. You see, Jeremiah says, I do not. No, and God says, don't say do not. Two times God says, do not. Jeremiah, you're not going to get off the hook with your do not. Do not because I'm going to do. All right, so the emphatic reply here, the double do not, is an emphatic response to Jeremiah. No, do not say that. Do not say do not to me. Twice over, do not say do not to me. I'm going to take care of your inadequacies. All right, so how does he do that? He answers with a promise, doesn't he? What does he say in that eighth verse? Why? I am with you. you. What 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 promise is that? In one word, what promise is that? Loretta? That's the Emmanuel promise. That's the I am with you. God with me. God with us promise. So notice here, we have another little snowball. The first time the Emmanuel promise is given explicitly, even though the language is elsewhere in the Old Testament before this, but the first time is explicitly in Isaiah 7:14 Behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son shall call his name Emmanuel okay so here is Jeremiah finding an echo God actually capitalizing on an echo of the Emmanuel motif back in Isaiah and it even goes back further than that so this promise of God's presence with him assures him that he does not need to say I do not know Because God says, I do know. Do not say, I am not able. For God says, I am able. Because I will be present with you. All right, so God is going to be present with you. That that means that God is going to put a kind of one of those Virgin Mary Holy holy halos over his head, right? God is with him. That marks him out. Okay, He's got that little aura over his head. All the saints have that. All the icons have that, right? You've all got those little things over your head if God's with you, right? That's the point. 
if God is with him, then he's with God, isn't he? Is this a reciprocal true? I am with you because I've made you with me. Once again, notice God's gracious, electing, predestinating, uniting purpose here. If I am Emmanuel with you, you are child, servant, son, daughter with me. My life is present with you because your life is present with me. Don't forget the flip side of this Emmanuel promise. Don't flip, forget the flip side of God is with me promise. Because God is with me, you are with God. He has united you unto himself, unto his very own life, unto his very own grace, unto his very own destiny. So, <clears throat> Jeremiah is being assured that he has the most intimate relationship that no one can destroy. Do not be afraid. Do not say, I am with you and you are with me. You and me, Jeremiah. You and me, Jeremiah. You with me, I with you. It's that tight. All right, so... This is also an echo of Exodus 3.12. Keep your finger there in Jeremiah and turn back to Exodus 3.12. I want you to see this. This is again the call of Moses. The commission of Moses in Exodus 3. Burning bush commission. What does God say? Exodus 3.12. Harriet, what does he say? I will be with you. Now, turn over to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Terry, do you have it? Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Very good. And over to 43, verse 5 as well. Do not fear, for I am with you. Duplication of it again. Who is he talking to in these two passages? He's talking to the Abed Yahweh. He's talking to the servant of the Lord. So once again, that paradigm, that echo that goes back to the Ebed Yahweh of Isaiah and the servant of the Lord of Isaiah and also to Moses is being replayed here in God's charge, God's commission, God's endorsement of the prophet Jeremiah. He being tied into a long line of prophetic biography, prophetic narrative biography, prophetic theological biography. He's being drawn in to the life of these uh, these before him, and he's projecting this life as they project it beyond himself to Christ Jesus, who is the supreme second Moses, the supreme servant of the Lord, the supreme Jeremiah, the supreme son of God, prophet, who has spoken once and for all in these last days. All right, now in verse 9, we have a divine act. We've had divine speech 
in this dialogue up to this point. Now we have a divine act. What is that act? Clay, what's God's act here? What's he do? Reaches out of his hand and touches him. He touches Jeremiah's mouth. Does that produce any echoes? Back to Isaiah chapter 6. Loretta, would you read Isaiah 6, 7 for us when you get it? My mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. What did he touch his mouth with? Burning coal. A coal from the altar. Very good. All right, so <clears throat> Isaiah has been touched, and Isaiah is the one who's going to prophesy this servant of the Lord motif. So once again, we're tied back into Isaiah with this touching the mouth motif. And we've already pointed out that the words in the mouth come from Deuteronomy 18. But notice that they also are repeated in Isaiah 51 and following. I'm particularly interested in Isaiah 59, verse 21. Isaiah 59, verse 21. Frank, do you have it? As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit who is in who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or the mouths of their descendants from the time from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Very good. Now notice that phrase, the words which I put in your mouth. Exactly the same kind of language we find in Deuteronomy 18.18 and also here in Jeremiah 1.9. Who is this one who has the spirit with the words of the Lord in his mouth, Frank? Isaiah. Isaiah. Turn over to chapter 61, verse 1. Go ahead, read, Frank. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up <coughs> to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoner, and to and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Good. Where have you heard that sermon? Jesus quotes it. Where? Look for it. When? In the synagogue. In the synagogue where? Nazareth. At Nazareth, correct. He's in his hometown synagogue because he goes up as is his custom. Jesus never missed church. And they give him the book to read. He becomes the lector, becomes the reader of the day. And he opens it to Isaiah 61 and reads this. Because the words of the Lord are in his mouth. Because he is the Lord. And after he closes the book and says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing this day, what do they want to do with them? Loretta? Kill him. Run him off the cliff. Blasphemy. All right. <clears throat> this is the servant of the Lord again in Isaiah 61. 59, which is... Well, a servant motif projects this spirit, uh, the, the one who has the spirit, receiving the very words from God's mouth. 
and then he proclaims it in 61. Luke chapter 4 makes no question about the fact that this is prophesying the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eschatological servant of the Lord. The echo here in Jeremiah is an echo that resounds all the way down to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his first sermon, we might say, in the synagogue at Capernaum, at Nazareth. Now, there's one more thing to note about this word that put God puts in his mouth, and that's in verse 14 of chapter 5. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire. The word of the Lord, fire in the mouth of Jeremiah. All right, the little tandem there at the end of your outline in verse 9, the word of God in the prophet embodied, the word of God embodied in the prophet. God the word is the prophet incarnated. The eschatological Moses, the eschatological servant of the Lord, or the eschatological Ebed Yahweh. We are coming in this uh call of Jeremiah to realize there is a richer, more uh, integrated, closely uh, 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 oriented and uh, outworking of a connection between Jeremiah, the servant of the Lord, Moses, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So rich tapestry here of something that is simply more than, oh yeah, Jeremiah, he got called by God before he was formed in the woman. He went out and Preach fire out of his mouth. No, 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 no. There's a lot more here than that. And if you want to reduce it to the level, well, you go out and preach fire out of your mouth too. You've missed the richness of the fact that this prophet is a mirror image of the Son of God. That's where the rest of the scripture draws you. When Stephen identifies Christ with Deuteronomy 18, when the writer of Hebrews identifies the servant of the Lord with Jesus Christ, then you understand that what what we've got here is a rich, unfolding story of those whom God has placed his word in their mouth. And in these last days, you've heard the apex, the final edition of that word. Even Jeremiah wished he could have lived for that day, but you've seen it. And so you are greater than the prophets in that regard. You have seen more riches than they saw in their own day. Any questions? Now, on your outline at verse 10, I've listed some other passages there, 12, 18, 24, etc. The reason I listed them there is that this phrase, this expression that occurs in verse 10, occurs once again throughout the book in those passages. So it's this there for your information. In other words, this 
uh, <clears throat> challenge or commission which Jeremiah is given to uh, <clears throat> uproot and to plant, break down and build up, destroy and throw down is also uh, repeated again throughout the book as a motif. <clears throat> now, what's an infinitive? It's a dictionary form of the verb. It's a dictionary form of the verb. Yes, it's the verb. It is a verb, and what what does it what does it have with it? The verb. Two. Two plus the verb. Two plus the verb. All right. So what do we have? Six infinitives. Two. <clears throat> pluck up. Two. Break down. Two. Destroy. Two. Overthrow. Two. Build. Two. Plant. Now notice how these are arranged. They are arranged in a chiastic pattern. That is, they are arranged in terms of an opposition. When he says that you are to uproot or pluck up, notice that he also says at the end you are to plant. The word deracinate means to uproot or to take away the root. When he says that you are to break down, notice that he says you are to build up. So these are opposite uh, reflections, opposite dimensions, opposite actions. But then in the center, he places two infinitives which are synonyms. In other words, they are not antithetical. The first two and the last two are antithetical. They're opposites. But these two in the middle destroy and throw down are actually synonyms. Notice what he has done. God, in declaring this commission, has noted that he's going to bring an antithesis between tearing down and building up. So there is some grace on the other side of this uh, of this undoing of the order of the nation and the order of the city of Jerusalem. But at the center, he places a parallel between the ruin and raising of the city or the destroying and throwing down of the city in order, once again, here's this Semitic or Jewish style of duplicating something. He has two duplicate patterns. They're synonyms. They're words which mean the same thing even though they are different. Why does he do it? It is an emphatic underscoring of his judgment of destruction. There is no mirror reversal at the hinge point of this chiasm. The hinge point comes to its climax in total destruction. There is not going to be any redemption of Jerusalem from being raised, ruined, torn down, and destroyed. It's an emphatic underscoring of God's judgment. It is just as certain as the double emphasis at the hinge of the chiasm. All right. Now, that means that the center of this hinge, the center of this chiasm, is the wrath of God, not his grace. The wrath of God is at the center of this chiasm. Because the wrath of God is going to bring Judah and Jerusalem down to ruin. It is as certain and as emphatic as the word of God itself. And do you doubt it? Or can you not see the smoke ascending from Jerusalem burning with 
Babylonian arrows and pyres in 586 BC, do you doubt the wrath of God? I will point you to 586 BC as a demonstration of the wrath of God. I haven't even talked about 70 AD. I don't have to. 586 is sufficient. Horrific destruction. And Jeremiah is going to see it, prophesy it, and utter its duplicate, emphatic certainty. All right, now, there is a reversal of Jerusalem and Judah's condition. It is going to be ruined. But there is also a promise of a reversal of that reversal. There is a promise of restoration. Ruin reversed in restoration. Notice the soteric pattern here. Sinful removal before salvific renewal. Sinful removal before salvific renewal. The soteric pattern, the soteriological pattern, the salvific pattern. The sinner is broken before the sinner is raised up. Pangs of hell got hold of me, Psalm 116, verse 3. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, Psalm 40, verse 2. I was brought low, Psalm 116, verse 6, and the Lord saved me. Salvific removal, salvific removal of sin before salvific renewal of salvation. The soteric pattern is the sinner broken, brought down, brought low, humbled before he is brought up, before he is saved, before he is set upon a rock. That is the pattern of God's dealing with sinners in every age. Even if you have never known the depth of the anguish of the psalmist in Psalm 116, the pangs of hell got hold of me. Even if you have not known it, you have known your unworthiness insofar as you cannot come to Christ without the realization of it. Even if you were raised in a Christian home where you can't remember a time where you hated Jesus or were indifferent to him, when you come to realize that Jesus is your Savior because you've experienced his grace in your life, you realize that it's because you were unworthy of it. And therefore, you were bound by the pit of the miry clay in spite of the fact that you may have been indifferent to Christ. There are not many regenerated from their mother's wombs. We know of one. Who was he? John the Baptist. Which is not to say that there aren't others. But they are the exception, not the norm. The norm is that we are all brought kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven because we are all brought up out of the miry clay in one way or another, even though we may not have entered into the depths of depravity, nonetheless, we realize that in presence of Almighty God, the Holy Lord, 
of the universe who created us in his image and we marred it and defaced it with our own self-centeredness, we realize that we are in a pit. And Jesus came to take us up out of the pit. And when we come to Jesus, then he brings us up out of our self, out of our self-centered, narcissistic self. And washes us whiter than snow. So the pattern here that Jeremiah is commissioned to proclaim is the pattern of the plan of salvation for sinners in general, not just Jerusalem in particular, not just the nation of Judea in particular. Well, then, next page of your outline. Is this eschatological reversal primarily temporal, national, ethnic, political, regal? This reversal from ruin to restoration. This reversal from tearing down to building up. This reversal from uprooting to planting. Is this primarily a reversal which is temporal, that is, in time? Is it national, that is, it has to do with a particular nation? Is it ethnic, that is, it has to do with a particular race? Is it political, it has to do with a particular political establishment or administration? Is it regal, it has to do with earthly kings? Is that the reversal that is being projected here? Is that the restoration Jeremiah is prophesying? And God's people said, no, you're absolutely right. How do you know? How do you know your answer is right? Harriet, you want to risk your reputation? <coughs> How do you know you're right? In interpreting Jeremiah, not in terms of ethnic, national, political, temporal, regal, etc. How do you know you're right? You know what he gives you. You know from his word. And what part of his word? I like that. What part of his word? You're absolutely right. It comes from his word. What part of his word tells you that? Okay, what part of his word tells you that? Ben? Loretta? Robert? Uh, the New Testament. Where? I'm sure that... Is this something you just sat through? Yeah. What? Yeah, it doesn't say that in Hebrews. Hebrews, where, 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 where? <laughs> What's the longest quotation in the New Testament? What book of the Bible does the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament come from? Loretta? Okay, go ahead, Loretta. Scott? Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. I will write my covenant on their heart. The new covenant. So here it is. <clears throat> Jeremiah is not projecting a national restoration of Israel, a Jewish kingdom. What Jeremiah is projecting is the new covenant. He's talking about what Hebrews 8 is saying has dawned, has come, has arrived. So this reversal has nothing to do with a temporal, national, ethnic, or political administration. No future Jewish millennium. Oh, I'm sorry, fans. 
because Hebrews 8 tells you it's not. Hebrews 8 tells you what Jeremiah 31 is telling you is going to happen. It has nothing to do with a nationalistic ethnic administration. It has everything to do with what comes in Christ, which is not ethnic and national. It's universal and comprehensive, isn't it? Because we got included in, didn't we? We Gentiles got folded in. Praise God. Jeremiah 31. Okay. <laughs> this reversal, which is being projected by God to Jeremiah, okay, has the apparent setting of a nation, a race, a time in history, a king on the throne, a political administration. Apparently, Jeremiah is speaking into that kind of an arena. Is that where the restoration or reversal occurs? Not according to Hebrews 8. Now, I'm not denying that they're going to come back from captivity. I'm not denying that. But that even that is not the restoration which he is projecting. Not the eschatological reversal. And that's the reason Hebrews 8 is quoting Jeremiah 31. Because that is the, in fact, Hebrews 8 is almost at the center of the book of Hebrews. That is the reason that that long quotation is there. Because that book is talking to you not about the externalism of national Israel. Okay? Not about the externalism of the Levitical sacrifices, the tabernacle in the wilderness, etc. Talking to you about what has come in the, in the spirit through Christ. The fulfillment that has occurred in these last days through the new covenant in Christ Jesus, which is not ethnic. It is not national. Correct? It is universal. It is comprehensive. It includes Gentiles along with Jews. Does that make sense, Ben? Yeah. Okay. I just got stuck on these verses. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. It's fine to ask that clarifying question. Yes, Kay. But then this specific verse, verse 10 does refer to Jeremiah's <coughs> lifetime also. Yes, it does. But, but more. But more, exactly. More that. than that. So it's not merely uh, ethnic, national, etc. It's more than that. See? <clears throat> All right, now we have divine acts in this chapter. Uh, we had the first divine act. Kay, you, uh, Clay, you identified this. What was the first divine act? When he's touched his mouth in verse 9. What other divine acts do we have in this chapter? What do you have in verse 11? Lisa, what do you see in verse 11? Um, he talked to him at the branch. The branch. Shows him a what? Um, a branch of the normal tree. Mm-hmm. And that was a what? Say it in one word. He sees a a vision. He sees a vision. Okay, verse 13. Another what? Loretta? Another vision. All right, so we have three divine acts. We have God touching the prophet's mouth. We have God showing him a movie. You like movies, right? I hope you like good movies anyway. Okay, he's showing him a movie. Verse 11. He's showing a vision of an almond tree. He's showing another vision in verse 13. He's showing him now a vision of a boiling pot. All right, now, what about these visions? First of all, 
The one in verse 11, the almond tree, is described in verse 12 in terms of a pun. If you have the New American Standard Version, you have the marginal translation of the Hebrew words, and you can see the pun. In verse 11, the Hebrew word is shakez. In Hebrews, in, in verse 12, the Hebrew word is shokez. You can hear it, shakez, shokez. It's a play on the word. It's a play on the Hebrew language. It's very difficult to get it in English. But he's almondizing the almond tree. Okay, that's the best I can do. Almondizing the almond tree. All right, now, when the almond tree blooms, and I mentioned this before, it blooms in, well, wherever it blooms, even in California, where they've got large almond farms in the Central Valley, in San Joaquin, it blooms in February, early in February. And it's beautiful when it flowers. Same way in Palestine, when it blooms. <clears throat> blooms very early in February, and it flowers. So it's very attractive. <clears throat> so this is a positive vision. And it's a positive vision which is auspicious. The blooming almond tree is a harbinger of salted almonds. Blue diamond, right? Love those things. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Smoke smalted salted almonds. <laughs> okay. All right. <clears throat> Get the picture. So this is a positive and auspicious vision. What about verse 13? <clears throat> what does he see? <clears throat> Notice the language. A boiling pot facing away from the north. Facing away from the north. What direction is it facing? South, very good. It's facing towards the south. And what is about to happen to this boiling pot? It's going to get empty. It's going to be spilled over. It's going to be empty. Yes, it's about to tip over. So it's going to be boiling over, facing towards the south, coming from the north, and spilling over. Now, that's a negative vision. That's an ominous vision. Verse 11 was positive. A auspicious vision. Verse 13 is a negative and ominous vision. And when did these visions come to Jeremiah? What's the date? Okay? 626. It is 626 BC. And what is auspicious about that date? What is ominous about that date? What is auspicious is that Jeremiah gets commissioned. What's ominous about 626 B.C.? It's the date or the year of the death of Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, which means the last great king of the Assyrian Empire, and that empire is on the brink of death. It's also the date of the rise of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, who is the father of Nebuchadnezzar, and he is going to bring the hordes of Babylon against Jerusalem and Judea. This is an extremely auspicious year. 626 B.C. It's an ominous year. It's a year in which the shifting of the international scene is going to squeeze Jerusalem, Judah, and even Jeremiah in its gauntlet. All right. Now, who are these coming from the north? Babylonians, not the Assyrians. It is not the Assyrians. It is the Babylonians. How do you know? Notice in verse 15, he repeats it, the families of the kingdoms of the north. All right, then how do we know that these are the Babylonians? Turn to chapter 25, verse 9. 
one could make a case for the Assyrians, and yet the Assyrians aren't really going to come from the north against Judah and Jerusalem again in the time of Jeremiah. So who are these families of the north? Jeremiah 25, verse 9. The Lord says, I will send and take all the families of the north, and I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The specific identification of these families of the north are, <coughs> Scripture interprets Scripture, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, in this 15th verse, notice also that the ones that come from the north are going to set their thrones at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Chapter 39 of Jeremiah, verse 3. Jeremiah 39, verse 3. The officials of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, understood, and sat down at the middle gate. And they're listed there, the officials of the king of Babylon taking their seat in the gates of Jerusalem. What Jeremiah prophesied was fulfilled even in his own day in this case. All right, now, God is going to bring his judgments, verse 16, upon this nation and upon this city. What is the basis for his judgment? Why is he going to do this, verse 16? Terry, what does that verse tell you? Why is God going to do it? Uh, Because they worship other gods. Because of idolatry. Because of idolatry. All right, now chapter 2 is going to begin to expand this matter of the apostasy of idolatry. And so we want, when we get to chapter 2 next time, Lord willing, we want to think about the psychology of idolatry. The psychology of idolatry. What is it that attracts the mind, attracts the will, attracts the personality to idolatry? Have you ever thought about that? Well, you have a couple weeks to think about it. And, you know, I'll take your answers when when we take a look at it. There is more to idolatry than statues and little uh, images, okay? So we want to think about what is it that draws a human to it, okay? The psychology, what's going through the mind, okay? The consciousness, the personality, what is it? But nonetheless, the basis of God's coming to judgment against Jerusalem is idolatry. Verse 17, speak the words which I command you. Notice that's an echo of verse 7 up above. And he assures them, I like uh, the older translation better here, do not fear them or I will make you fear them. Do not fear them or you will be afraid of them. Okay. In other words, Jeremiah is called to be fearless. How did he do on this score? Was Jeremiah fearless? He moans and complains an awful lot, like the rest of us. He's got feet of clay, like the rest of us. When he comes under fire, you don't know what you're going to do, like the rest of us. And yet, at the same time, he's been forewarned. 
So that in some ways, when Jeremiah suffers, it's because God did make him fearful of them, because he didn't stand on fearless in face of them. Verse 18, all levels of society are going to oppose him. Every level of culture is going to stand against him. The bureaucrats and the politicians are going to stand against him. The theologians and priests are going to stand against him. The citizens and the people in the street are going to stand against him. Everybody is going to stand against Jeremiah. He is going to have a few friends, but not many. The majority is going to be against him. He is going to be the very vocal minority. Do you feel that you may be in company with Jeremiah these days? Mm. Verse 18, God is going to make him a fortified city. In spite of all the opposition against him, God is going to make the prophet like a city which cannot be destroyed. This is a very interesting image, namely that God will treat Jeremiah like a city himself. And that image will come to its fullest expression in the book of Lamentations, because in the book of Lamentations, which Jeremiah writes after the destruction of Jerusalem, there is an identification between the prophet and the city of Jerusalem. It is actually poignant and profound. And so here we have an anticipation of it. In other words, in the second chapter of Lamentations, the prophet in that poetry begins to speak as the personification of the city of Jerusalem. I am the city. Uh, uh. All right. However, Jerusalem is a vulnerable city. Jeremiah is an invulnerable city because God is going to make him a fortified city, a fortified fortress. And though they make war against him, verse 19, make war against Jerusalem. The irony is that Babylon will destroy Jerusalem while Jerusalem makes war against Jeremiah. God will deliver Jeremiah, but he will not deliver Jerusalem. And the eschatological Jeremiah, God will deliver him by way of resurrection, but he will not deliver Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Deja vu. Deja vu. Jeremiah then is a mirror of the eschatological deliverance. Not a city, but a person. Not a nation, but a person who unites persons of all nations unto himself. Not a land, but a person who takes up his seat in a heavenly country, an everlasting country. An everlasting heavenly country of an everlasting heavenly life. Jeremiah drives us to Christ. Do you see it? I hope you do. We have explored the narrative paradigm of the life and the book of the prophet Jeremiah in two ways thus far in our study. We have sketched the more than 40-year macro-narrative, large narrative, 
in which the story of the prophet interfaces with the shifting narrative of his own nation, Judah, and the clashing nations international, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. We have traced the story of this political ebb and flow against the background of the inauguration and conclusion of Jeremiah's career, 626 B.C. to 586 B.C. That inception and culmination is bracketed. It is bracketed in the superscription to the prophet's book, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And that superscription features the further interface of the prophetic biographical narrative with the royal biographical narrative of the three principal monarchs of Judah in Jerusalem, kings who span that 40-year macro-narrative of the era of the prophet, namely Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. That's the reason they're there in the superscription. The narrative scene of this drama is the kingdom of Judah. The narrative setting is chiefly the city of Jerusalem. The plot sequence is a nation bent on self-destruction as it sneers at the word of the Lord, ridicules and persecutes the Lord's prophets and servants, flagrantly flaunts its open vice and immorality, and commends itself to detente with its enemies while refusing the all too apparent signs of its imminent destruction. In a series of rolling crises of invasion, siege, and deportation, the kings, leaders, theologians of Judea roll the dice, gambling their future on the presumption of their past. And when the final collapse of their nation, of their government, of their culture, of their religious temple sears their eyes with smoke and fire and blood and death, the chains that enslave them and the whips that thrash them are bitter reminders that their foolish sins, their foolish and ugly sins, have reduced them to bondage, bondage to pagan and imperial tyrants. Now, now the narrative of Jeremiah's call, verses 4 to 19. That narrative sets a micro-narrative in motion. The crisis of the nation mirrors the crisis of the prophet. The call narrative sets this drama in motion. The divine crisis of sovereign Lord God and sinful nation simmers, erupting to its climax 40 years after the prophet's call, the call narrative sets this drama in motion. The call narrative charts the course of the sovereign Lord God and faithful servant prophet, sets the course of dramatic narrative interface, the life of the prophet in the life of God the Lord. The mirror 
the mirror of divine relation and divine rejection, reflects God's story with Judah and Jerusalem. The mirror of divine relation and divine rejection reflects Jeremiah's story with Judah and Jerusalem. The call narrative sets the drama in motion. The call narrative commissions the prophet in a narrative which prophesies the prophet himself. Like God his Lord, he will pour forth his words and his words will be refused. Like God his Lord, he will warn of the judgment to come and his warnings will be ridiculed. God the Lord invades the life of the prophet with his word. It becomes fire in his mouth. God the Lord invades the life of the nation with his word. It becomes a devouring fire from his mouth. The call narrative contains the whole career of the prophet Jeremiah, the whole book of the prophet Jeremiah in miniature, a micro-narrative in chapter 1, verses 4 to 19. God and the prophet. God and the prophet, the principal dramatis personae. God and the prophet praying, pleading, proclaiming. God and the prophet. God and the prophet rebuffed, refused, rejected. The transition in chapter 1, the reversal in the call narrative is a paradigm of the transition about to fall upon Judah, Jerusalem, her kings, her leaders, her theologians, her people in the streets. The rest of the book will contain specific narrative ripples of this fundamental narrative transition. Chapter 1 of Jeremiah is essential to time place and plot sequence, crisis and resolution. The life of the prophet is drawn into the life of God, which God designs for the nation city. Jeremiah's life interfaces with God's life of rejection in Judah's rejection of God's life. God in the prophet, prophet in God, nation city in the prophet, prophet in in the nation city. This narrative drama reaches back retrospectively, retrospectively reaches back in the history of redemption to Isaiah's Ebed Yahweh, to Moses, great savior and mediator of the people of God. The narrative ripples of the career of Jeremiah flow backwards to touch, to merge with the narrative ripples of the servant songs and Moses' songs. And the narrative ripples of the career of Jeremiah reach forward, stretching out prospectively to the fullness of the times, merging, touching, interfacing with another weeping prophet whose words to Jerusalem, Judea, were refused, rejected, ridiculed. And yet, and yet, Jeremiah's story is hidden in that prophet's story, as his life is hidden with the Lord his God. And God the Lord makes Jeremiah 
an anticipation of his very living word, his very living son, his Christ, our Savior. So that the story of the eschatological Jeremiah, the story of the eschatological Jeremiah completes and transcends the story of the protological Jeremiah. This weeping prophet of these last days is Emmanuel, God with Jeremiah 626, 586 B.C., God with us 2012 A.D., God with all his children from all nations until he comes, until he comes with fire and glory. Let us pray. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit to inspired the words that we have studied, we may see the profound relationship and interface between yourself and your servant, Jeremiah. Because it is the relationship will come to its fullest fruition in that interface between yourself and your only begotten son. It will be the ripple playing itself out in the fullness of time, which will catch up into itself all of the previous promises of the ages. And the life of Moses will come to its fullest fruition as the life of the Ebed Yahweh will come to its climax as the life of Jeremiah will come to its completion in the life of Jesus. And we will stand with Moses And with that servant of the Lord and with Jeremiah, we will stand with all of your sons and daughters of the ages. We will stand in a city which cannot be destroyed. We will stand in a kingdom which cannot be compromised. We will stand with a whole choir and chorus and assembly of those who have not prostrated themselves before the idols of this world and who have not sold themselves into the apostasy of idolatry, adultery, and harlotry. We will stand there, Lord, not in ourselves, but in Christ, not by our own strength, but by his precious grace. We will stand there because we will stand with our lives hidden with Christ in God, even as Jeremiah stands there now, his life hidden with Christ, his Savior, and his God. Give us courage to stand, Lord. Give us faith to hold on. Give us the life that cannot be destroyed. Give us the grace of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name was our Lord, as he was the Lord of Jeremiah. Amen. If you pick-